Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story. One of the most popular questions adults love to ask kids is what they want to be when they grow up. It's a terrible question, but nothing will stop old people from torturing young ones, it seems. I grew up at the dawn of the space age, so for a while, I told adults that I wanted to be an astronaut. It was a safe answer. I next went through a period of telling people I wanted to be an artist. But there was one little problem with that. I couldn't paint, draw, or sculpt. I went through an actor phase, but eventually that fell by the wayside too. I can't remember the other things I said to keep adults off my back. But there was one thing I'm certain I never told an adult I wanted to be when I grew up, the host of a podcast. Which just goes to show what a stupid question it is. I think Shakespeare's Hamlet put it best. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. But recently, I got to talking about how even when you know exactly what you want to do, a book can push you in the right direction with today's guest. I'm Keith Gesson, and and I wrote a novel called A Terrible Country. Keith Gesson is a writer of journalism that has been featured in The New Yorker and The London Review of Books, and also of the novels All the Sad Young Literary Men and, most recently, a Terrible Country. Keith was also a founding editor of the literary magazine N Plus One. Much of his work has focused on Russia and the former Soviet Union, which makes sense. It's where his story starts. My family came over from the Soviet Union when I was six. So I was, I was pretty small. I don't have much memory of Moscow, aside from just kind of playing in the courtyard and having my dad take me to school on a sled. The Gessen family moved to Boston and got situated in America, but the Soviet influence remained omnipresent. So I grew up in this very Russian sort of archipelago inside of American Boston. You know, like all our all my parents' friends were Russian, right? And and all the people that we interacted with kind of, you know, our dentist was Russian and our doctor was Russian and the clown who came to birthday parties was Russian. Though the family had seemingly left life in Russia behind, the split was not so straightforward. You know, my parents had left the Soviet Union because it was bad and, and scary and, and, you know, they thought they would have a, a better life in, in the United States. So Russia, on the one hand, was this kind of terrible place that we had run away from. On the other hand, it was also kind of the source of all enlightenment and culture. And so Russia was this kind of ambiguous figure in, in my life. And, and, and certainly for, um, for most of my kind of childhood and adolescence, I took the, 
the first lesson to be the primary one, meaning uh, Russia is a bad place. Um, and, and we've moved to America. And I really kind of took our assimilation very seriously, especially as my sister was quite a bit older. My parents were never really going to assimilate. So I was kind of the, the front lines of our assimilation. I took that task very seriously. But there was one particular area that made it clear full assimilation would never be possible. Books. So my parents, like much of their generation of, of Russians, were real kind of bibliophiles. And so when we were emigrating, the one thing that we took with us were our books. And, you know, I think you were allowed to, a few suitcases and whatever, but you were also allowed to mail stuff. But there was a kind of uh, limit to the size of the package. So my dad, over a, a period of months, was going to the post office in Moscow, you know, every day with a package, a 10-pound package of books, and gradually um, mailing our library uh, to the States. In fact, uh, the first really big fight, my parents were not uh, big arguers with one another, but I, I d d distinctly remember a major fight they had back in Moscow and it was an argument about which books <laughs> to take and which not to take. As that library took shape in America, there was a clear hierarchy among the books. The way the Soviets published books was in these uh, multi-volume editions, so you couldn't just get War and Peace by Tolstoy. You had to get, you know, 18 volumes of Tolstoy's works. And, you know, I, I, there were always problems with, like, volume 13 or, or 16 or something. It was hard to get, right? So some people would be missing that volume. But, you know, if you were a real diehard, you would you would find it. And, you know, so, and so the fact that it was kind of hard to acquire these books and that you had to kind of acquire them sequentially, um, I guess, made people kind of attached to them. So in our house, we had all these Russian books kind of on the first and second floor. And then in the basement, we had the uh, English language books. And for whatever reason, it felt to me like those were like the kind of secret, disreputable books that you could go downstairs and, and kind of uh, secretly try to read. As Keith grew up, he was a voracious reader, developing a zest for writers like Ernest Hemingway. So it came as little surprise that he wanted to be a writer himself. My mom was, you know, she was a literary critic, and so she was writing. So in our household, it wasn't a kind of weird thing to want to do. In fact, it was very much a kind of admired thing. I mean, some of the people that my parents most admired were writers. So yeah, I think some some combination of those things. And and um, I also think maybe it had a little bit something to do with the the experience of having a kind of private life that seemed so different to me from the private life of my peers. So just kind of having a home life that didn't resemble theirs um, and just kind of walking around with that and not, not really having anybody to talk to about it. And yeah, I mean, there is, there must be some reason that, you know, a, a, a disproportionate number of the children of Soviet immigrants have become writers. When we come back from the break, Keith tries to become a writer and comes across a book that helps him do so.
Keith Gesson had grown up with volumes of Tolstoy on display at home. His family made reading and writing a priority. But as Keith began trying to write his own work, he ran into a problem. So I very much wanted to be a writer, and yet the books that I read throughout kind of my adolescence and into college and really through the end of college were all old books. And and I and whenever I came across kind of contemporary uh, or more or less contemporary literature, I didn't really, I didn't like it. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what it was doing, which is, which is weird. There should be some account of this. But, you know, I mean, so, so I could read Dostoevsky, I could read Tolstoy, I could read Hemingway. All that stuff seemed like something that I, I could certainly understand the kind of moral stakes. Uh, some of the historical stuff was clear to me. I don't know why. I mean, and, and it may have had to do something with the fact that my own family was uh, kind of a little bit cut off from kind of American life a little bit. But for Keith, there was never any doubt that he would still attempt to write something himself. I remember graduating from college and uh, moving to New York uh, very much with the idea that I was going to uh, live very cheaply and I was going to figure out how to be a writer. Um, And um, I would take the 7 train to the Mid-Manhattan Library. It was thanks in part to the layout of that particular library that Keith's education in contemporary fiction began. Right now, it's under construction, but until recently, you could walk in to the first floor, and the fiction section was on the first floor, so you didn't have to take the escalator, you didn't have to take the elevator, you know, which was often broken, it didn't smell very good, uh, but you could just get into the first floor, get some fiction, and get out. And I spent that year, uh, re- you know, kind of catching up on contemporary literature, and you know, so I, I and I started reading stuff that my friends had started talking about, uh, kind of in my senior year of college. DeLillo, Pynchon, Infinite Jest had just come out. I read that. And so that's kind of the sort of postmodern canon, as we called it. And I liked those books a lot. I, I, uh, DeLillo, I thought, was was really funny. But I also distinctly felt like it wasn't something that uh, I could be very good at writing. I mean, I, I did a lot of imitation kind of DeLillo writing <laughs> uh, during that year. You know, and, and I, I, I definitely went through this period of, you know, of, of kind of reading a book and then writing an imitation story. So I, I, I um, even earlier, I'd, re- I, you know, I'd read Bright Lights, Big City, and I wrote an imitation story of that. I read Pale Fire, uh, I wrote an imitation story of that. Um, it felt like the sort of more, the closer we got to the present, the, more, the easier it became to imitate. Keith also brought some books from his parents' house back to New York some of the disreputable English-language books from the basement. One of those books was Saul Bellow's Humboldt's Gift. He's some kind of writer, and he has writer's block. 
He's decided as part of his kind of uh, way of dealing with his writer's block, he has started working out a lot. The book begins with him talking about how he's been working out so much that when someone tries to rob him on the streets of Chicago, uh, he's able to run away. <laughs> and, um, and then mostly the book is a kind of uh, an account of his friendship with this poet named Humboldt, who's based on the poet Delmer Schwartz. The book quickly became a source of inspiration for Keith. That book really kind of for the first time was this contemporary book. It took ideas seriously in the way that I felt like DeLillo and Pynchon and David Foster Wallace had done. It took history seriously. I just thought it was, it was hilarious. <laughs> I, thought it, I thought it was really funny. Um, but I, yeah, I did. I mean, it felt to me like... Not only was it contemporary literature that I enjoyed, which I, you know, I, I, I thought, you know, I loved White Noise, I loved Infinite Jest, I loved End Zone uh, by DeLillo. Um, it, it felt like something that I could kind of maybe do. Uh, what if I arranged some of the experiences that I've been thinking about writing about in a story that sounded a little bit like this? The process of writing that book published in 2008 and called All the Sad Young Literary Men, was not such a straight path. So I started writing my kind of Bellow Roth, Leonard Michaels-influenced stories a couple years out of college, and I was also doing journalism and reviewing to kind of pay the bills. And I really realized that if I didn't try to go to grad school, I, I might not be able to write fiction anymore uh, because I was really getting sucked into um, doing you know more journalism, more reviewing. Um, so I, I applied to grad schools. I got into one. The one that I got into was Syracuse. So I went up there for two years and I wrote about uh, two-thirds of my first book. Uh, then I moved back to New York and all I had to do was write, you know, one-third. It seemed so easy, but then uh, we started Endless One, a literary magazine which, which um, basically took over my life. So it took me, you know, it took me another three years to write that kind of last third of the book. After the book was published, Keith found himself turning back again to the lessons from Bellow about incorporating his own experiences in his writing as his second novel began to take form. It was after my first book came out, and I kind of didn't have much going on. There was an opportunity to move to Moscow and take care of my grandmother. That was 2008. And that was the year that I went and lived with my grandmother, and, and that's the basis for A Terrible Country. A Terrible Country tells the story of a failed academic living in New York who moves back to Moscow to care for his grandmother. That experience of, of going to Moscow um, to take care of my grandmother, feeling, um, you know, not disappointed because I'd been to Moscow before, but certainly feeling like I wasn't being very helpful to my grandmother. Not knowing, just not knowing what I could do for her, right? It took me a very long time and, you know, about this, you know it, it took me a very long time to, to understand that she didn't need me to take her on exciting adventures around Moscow, that that was um, 
kind of even though she might think she wanted to do that actually it was sort of mentally and especially physically just much too taxing for her and uh you know that what she really needed for me was just for me to hang out there and kind of be physically present and it took me a, a, a very long time to figure that out and yeah and I, and I certainly didn't think um I certainly didn't think I was going to write about it it's certainly um it's not quite, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly based on my experience um, in Moscow. It's not, um, uh, it's not literally what happened, uh, but it's what it, what felt like had happened. <laughs> I'm curious, did you ever have the opportunity to meet Saul Bellow? I went to a class of his. Actually, he was teaching a class at BU in the late 90s. He was teaching a, a seminar at BU, and a friend of mine was auditing it. And Bello, at this point, was in his mid-80s, I think. I have no idea why he was still teaching a seminar at BU. I mean, it's kind of amazing, um, but I, he must have really liked it. But my, yeah, my friend said, well, yeah, you can go to his office hours. I go once in a while, and uh, it's really fun. He falls asleep sometimes while I'm in there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's pretty cool. And he's like, you should come with me. And, you know, I was like, I don't really feel like subjecting Saul Bellow <laughs> to having to try to stay awake, you know, during his office hours while I'm uh, grilling him. Um, but, um, it, you know, in retrospect, I wish I, I had done So that. you didn't go. I didn't go. What would you have asked him? Oh, you know, yeah, you know, I guess I don't know. What would I have asked him? I mean, yeah, I wish you know, I'm, I'd be, you know, I think his. It's, you, you always want you always want to wonder like what books a writer didn't write that they, you know, wish they had had time to write or or, you know, um, which books they would rewrite if they could. <laughs> Yeah, you know, had he lived his life uh, correctly and correctly? I don't know if you, that, that would have been a, a tough question to ask. You know, I think he would have, um, I think things went pretty well for Saul Bellow. But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson with editing help from Alyssa Martino. Thanks to Keith Gesson. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>